Pretty sure I'm not alone in finding fascinating uh, the race to become the presidential candidate uh, of the Republican Party in the United States. Okay, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing to see the whole uh, the whole way that this this is unfolding. Now, it's probably fair to say, is it not, that it's it's, it's maybe boiling down to a two horse race now, isn't it? So you have got this guy, what's his name, Mr. Ted Cruz. So this big sort of former uh, Texan lawyer. And he is going up against somebody you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, a certain Mr. Uh, Donald Trump. Okay. Now, you see what that is, don't you? Like, you strip away the rallies and the flag waving and you strip away the dancers and the singers and so forth. You see that it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle for power, isn't it, between these two guys? Like what you've got is two men going up against each other and it's a battle and it's a battle for authority, it's a battle for control and I guess you could say for good or ill that there is a it's a battle for influence over the people. Well, this morning, here's the thing. Let's go back in time. Right in here just now, let's go back to the first century, to the Sea of Galilee. But I don't want us to go back to the water. Okay? I want us instead to go to the water's edge. And there's a group of guys, and they're, 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 they're coming into land. They're coming into shore. And as they disembark, what did we call it last week? As they disembark their small wooden boat, one of those men, he turns, and he's confronted by another man who is running down the hillside to to meet him. And in the moments that follow, what are we going to see? We're going to see a struggle for power between those two men. And in that struggle for power, you and I, by the Holy Spirit, we're going to learn not just about the forces, the spiritual forces at play on this earth. We are going to see this morning just who it is that holds the upper hand. So here's the plan. Let's pray. Let's come before our God and ask him for illumination. And then we'll turn back to scripture. So let's pray. Lord God Almighty, it is with reverence that we come before you. We come to your grand and great throne room. We do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray as helpless humans. We pray to to a divine and eternal God. We pray, would you speak to us, Lord, in heaven through your word. We are thirsty. We are hungry to know more of the gospel, to more of, to know more of Christ Jesus. We know this only comes by your Holy Spirit. Would you shed light on your word? Shed light into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you haven't already done so, if you would turn back with me in your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're looking at that section from 1 to 20. First heading that we'll think about just now is the, or first thing we see here is the destructive power of evil. So have that in your mind. The destructive power of evil. Okay. What, what are we dealing with? What have we got here? Well, 
if you're, you're picturing it, you see that, that Jesus and his disciples now are encountering a man. Now, what's, what's special about the man? This is a demon-possessed individual. It's a demon-possessed man. Okay. But what do we know from Scripture? We know that all those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who are outside of salvation, in a very real sense, they are in the grip of sin. Isn't that the case? That all those outside of Christ, in a very real sense according to Scripture, they are under the governance of evil. So, when we come to a story like this, when we come to a story about a man who is under the control of evil, a man who is demon-possessed, do you see what we've got here? We are given, in this man and his situation, we are given illustrations, pictures, if you like, of the effects that sin has on human life. We see that in this man and his situation. So what's the deal with this guy? What do we learn from, about this, this demon-possessed man? Well, a few things. I think we see here that, that sin humiliates us. You got that? Sin humiliates us. What I want to do is just point out something in the text that you may have noticed, and you may not have noticed as Adrian uh, read through the, the scripture. Did you notice this? The guy's naked. The guy's naked. Do you think you're the pastor's lost his, his mind. Well, no, think about how the story ends. Like, the, the townsfolk, the, the people in the countryside as well, they all hear about this incredible miracle that Jesus, he's exercised this guy! And they hear about the pigs and they come running! What do they see at the end? What do they see? They look, they arrive, they see the guy, and he was formerly a bit out there. He's now he's sitting there and he's in his right mind. What's emphasized in verse 15? He's dressed. <laughs> and in Luke's retelling of that story, listen to this. What does Luke say? He says, This man, he did not live in a house. Okay, which we have a, we, can, we can see that. And Luke says, for a very, very long time, this man wore no clothes. So the guy's naked. The guy's in the buff. You know, he's, he's naked. Now, you and I might look at that and think, well, it's slightly amusing that the guy's naked running about here. But don't you think the people, the people in the town, the people in the country, they would have found that greatly amusing? Do you not think so? Like, okay, I think the people around uh, the Sea of Galilee there that knew about this guy, I think they would have been scared of him. You don't think so? I mean, isn't he a bit of an intimidating character? Do you see what he's doing? He's smashing chains and he's ripping up his shackles and he's shouting and screaming and all that. I mean, he's like, he's a scary guy! But you know what people are like. You know what, you know what children are like. Like, here's a guy who's running around the hills. And shouting and wailing and screaming and he's start naked. You know? Like the kids, they would have laughed at this guy. He would have been the source of all the jokes. He would have been the source of ridicule. He would have been a laughing stock. And friends, I want you to see that that there is the effect that sin has 
on humanity. It makes us a laughing stock. You see, God has made us in his perfect image. You know, we, we are infused. Do you understand that man and, and woman infused with a certain dignity? You know, a real honor. We are, in a real sense, the crown of creation. You know, we're made to sort of reflect the glory and the character of God in this world. And what has sin done? And what is sin doing? It seeks to disrupt that image. Corrupt that image. And do you see what happens? The forces of evil, they look on at that and they laugh. Do you want an example? What about this new chapter of sexual declassification that we're moving into? In the last few years, there's been this real momentum behind transgender movement, hasn't there? Where gender is now viewed to be kind of fluid, isn't it? It's not binary, fluid. Where a man can, like contrary to scripture, we accept that, contrary to scripture, contrary to nature, contrary surely to science, a man can wake up in the morning and declare himself to be a woman. Isn't that a corruption of God's God's creation plan? Isn't that a distortion of what it means to be a woman? Isn't it a distortion of what it means to be a man? And you are not telling me this morning that Satan does not look on at that. He looks on at our society and he scoffs. We see that sin humiliates. Another thing we see though as well is that sin destabilizes. It destabilizes us. So we've established that this man, this demon-possessed man was naked. But surely it's also true that this man was completely out of control. You see that, don't you? Like if you if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that the townsfolk and the people round about the country, they were trying to chain him up, weren't they? They were trying to sort of restrain him. They would put shackles on his hands and on his, on his arms. And do you see what he does? He just he just rips these things apart and, and, he, and he goes sort of ballistic. Do you not think he's a, he's a picture of someone who is uncontrollable? Do you think it's fair to say that he's a picture of someone who is ungovernable? I mean, he is a picture of chaos, isn't he? Running around the hill. Were you here a couple of years ago? Were you part of LCPC a couple of years ago? Um, if you were, you'll maybe remember, I hope you will remember, that we went through uh, the early chapters of Genesis. So we went through God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. And I'll be frank with you, we were in Genesis 1 for quite a long time. You know, it took us a number of weeks uh, to make our way through Genesis chapter 1. Now, every single time we went to Genesis one, every single Sunday, I think what struck us was the orderliness of it. You, you look at Genesis 1 and read it this afternoon. You look at it and you see the structure of it. I mean, the, it's, it's just so designed and it's so beautiful. 
the creation. Do you see what I mean, though, don't you? The animals were created how? According to their kinds. The birds created according... Do you see how methodical it is? And there's a pattern for the weak, and there's a pattern for the family, there's a pattern for society. Wait a minute, think about our story here. Do you see what sin is seeking to do? Sin seeks to come in and, and, and cause chaos into that. Like sin seeks to come into the world and eliminate that godly orderliness. Do you see it? Sin comes in and wants to strip the structures away. I think you know that to be true if you're a Christian this morning. See, I ask you this. Would you think back on times, even recent times, where your spiritual life has not been what you know it should have been? Can I ask you, what characterizes those times of backsliding and those times of dryness? Hmm? Is it not disorder? Is it not just that confusion? Do you see it? Sin humiliates but sin also destabilizes. But we also see here that a sin destroys. Now, I know that a number of you are from different parts of the world, so I'm not patronizing you when I ask this. Uh, do you know what the RSPCA is? The RSPCA. If you don't, it is the Royal Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Okay, RSPCA. Now, I'm, I'm guessing if the RSPCA, if they had a least favourite <laughs> portion of scripture, then I'm guessing that what you and I have got in front of us has got to be a contender for that, do you not think? You, what, why? I mean, you've got 2,000 pigs, <laughs> and they are coming to a very, not a sticky end, but a watery end here. It's not going to go down well. Have you ever thought about that, the pigs? You see what happens? Jesus is just about to exercise the demons out of this guy. What happens? The demons say to Jesus, don't destroy us, send us into the pigs. And what happens? Jesus permits that request. Have Have you ever asked why that is? I mean, why doesn't Jesus say, absolutely not, why doesn't he destroy the demons? Why does he agree to this request to send him into the pigs? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of answers to that, one of which we'll look at later. I think partly it is to show you this morning the ultimate goal of evil. What happens to the pigs? The demons, they go into the pigs. Do the pigs just carry on just rolling around in the muck? What happens to the pigs? Immediately, without hesitation... Filled with this evil, they pelt, they run as fast as they can down the hill, and they drown, they die. Do you see it? The goal of evil is to destroy. And that's something that Mark underlines later on. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 of a demon-possessed child, a little boy. And what does he do in Mark 9? He throws himself all the time into the fire. You see it? It is evil seeking to destroy. Revelation. You've got Satan himself. He is kept in a pit. 
You know, he's, he's, he's been stopped from what? Deceiving the nations, it says. Why? It's evil seeking to destroy. And I think you see that most clearly in the actions of this man that we are focusing on today. What does this demon-possessed man do? What is he doing? Would you look at it? It's verse 5. What is he doing in the hills? Isn't that a thought? He's self-harming is what he's doing. Like he's sitting there and he's taking rocks and he's carving out his arms and he's carving up his legs. Do you see? It's evil seeking to destroy. And I think what we're seeing there should really shake up our Christian walk and our Christian living. See, understand this, that every single one of us in here who are Christians, at this point in our life, God is showing us specific sin that he wants us to fight. So at this point in your life, if you're a Christian, God is shining a light on specific areas of your life that he wants you to to put to death. What is that for you? I don't know. What is it for you? Is it sexual immorality? Or is it, is it crude talk with people at work? Is it your anger? Is it just covetousness of your friends? Is it, is it greed? Like, are you, are you playing those things down? Like, do you know in your heart of hearts, yes, God's showing me this sin, I can recognize this sin, but you know, are you playing it down? Don't you see in the man the truth? Don't you see here the severity of sin? What is it seeking to do? That sin is seeking to destroy you. Like that sin is seeking to corrupt you, is seeking to, to pull you away slowly but surely in really subtle ways to pull you away from godliness, from holiness. Do you understand? Like that sin isn't tame. That sin isn't, you know, to be trifled with. Sin, it humiliates us. It, 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 it destabilizes us. But what else do we see here? Sin is seeking to destroy. So we see the destructive power of evil in this man. Okay. A second thing that we see here is the authoritative power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the authoritative power of Jesus. Like, I, I don't know about you, I read this portion of scripture, don't we, and Surely we are taken aback and staggered by the power of evil. Do you not read about this man and do you not wonder and, and, and are you not staggered by the grip that the demon has or the demons have of this man's life? I mean, there's great power there. There's no question. But what I want us to do here is turn to a different power, a greater power. Because what Mark does in this portion of Scripture for us is he builds up through this portion of Scripture a picture of the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this grand crescendo where we see a different power. We see the power of Jesus. You see it? Well, 
How do we recognize Jesus' authority in this story? How, how does it come out here? Well, don't you see it in the possessed man's posture? His posture. Like, do you see, do you see the story? The man, he's up in the hills, he looks down, he sees the boat approaching. What does he do? He runs down the hill. And what happens? He falls. <laughs> now, I, I'm not suggesting for a second that he trips as he's running. No, this man here, he recognizes the uniqueness of this person who is stepping out of the boat. And this man, therefore, he falls to his face and he bows at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is Christ's power. Then we see Jesus' authority in the way that the man goes on to address Jesus. Do you see what he calls him? Look at verse 7. He's on the ground. He's on the shore, this man now, on his knees. And he looks up. And he declares Jesus to be what? The Son of the Most High God, which is the clearest divine and Christological title we have had so far of Jesus in the book of Mark. Do you see it? He's bowing before the Son of the Most High God. But then we see more of Jesus' authority in the man's request. Like what have we said he asked Jesus? He asked Jesus, don't send me away. Don't destroy me. Do not torture me. Send me into the pegs. But how does he ask him? Look at that in verse 10. Don't you think it's incredible? He begs Jesus. This was the guy a moment ago. We were staggered at. I mean, this was a man a moment ago displaying almost supernatural strength. I mean, he was ripping up chains, ripping off shackles. This man we were almost fearful of because of his might. And look at him now. Do you see him now? He's there on the ground. He is almost weeping. He is a pleading, pathetic mess. Such is the power. Such is the might, such is the authority of this one he stands before. And then this, this crescendo, you know, this gradual unveiling, if you like, of the power of Jesus, it reaches its peak. And it does so not in words, but in what Jesus does. Now, the Western world is one of a therapy isn't it? Especially in the United Kingdom at the moment, we seem to be very quickly following in the footsteps of the US, where I'm sure that some of our uh, American friends can, can back me up on this, where in some parts of the United States, it's almost kind of commonplace for people to be in some form of counselling, right? Now, there's, abs- you know, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with counselling therapy per se. In fact, we see what's going on, don't we? Like, what's the key to good therapy and counselling? The key is to try and deal with not the symptoms, but the source. Isn't that right? 
Like that's, that's what it's all about. Dealing not just with the, the person's sort of symptoms, but actually the root cause, the heart of it. Now, wait, wait. Think about the story. Like these people, the townspeople, they've all been trying to deal with the symptoms of evil. Haven't chaining up this guy because of his anger, chaining him up because of his destructive tendencies, right? And what do we see from Jesus? We see in this story that the Lord Jesus Christ, and he alone has the power not just to deal with the symptoms. He and he alone has the power to deal with the source of evil and sin. What does he do? He speaks and the demon leaves. And to where? To the pigs. Why the pigs? Well, we've said it shows the, the ultimate goal of, of evil. But wait a minute, why else? Why does Jesus send these demons into the pigs? Do you see it? Isn't it evidence? Isn't it to provide evidence of his own power? See, this morning, look at the pigs. Look at the pigs. There's 2,000 of them rushing into the water to die. Clearly, this, this man is not faking it. Look at the pigs. Look at the pigs. Clearly, this isn't a temporary moment of clarity for the man. No! What we're seeing is our Lord has the power not just to deal with the symptoms. He actually has the power to deal with the root cause of evil and sin. And I think that there, that's a lesson for every single one of us. See, if you're a Christian, what do we say our Lord? God is illuminating certain sin in your life for you to deal with, right? But how are you thinking about sin? Do you think that is beyond me? That sin that God is showing me has too tight a grip on my life. Is that how you think? Can I suggest to you this morning, perhaps then your sanctification is too self-reliant. Perhaps you need increasingly to look to, increasingly to pray to the one that we've got here. The only one who has the power to exercise sin and evil. But then, let me address the unleaving person. Like, why are you here this morning? Like, if you're not someone who's a, a Christian, if you're not someone who's born again, why are you here? <laughs> why are you here? Like, are, are you here perhaps because you are struggling with the effects of what you know in your heart of hearts to be sin? Friends, I, I would urge you not to look elsewhere this morning. I would urge you not to look at philosophy or an idea or another religion that is going to deal just with the symptoms of that. I would urge you instead to look at the shore and to look at the, the man who has just got off the boat, to look at Jesus, to look at the only one who can deal not just with the effects of the sin, not just with the symptoms of the sin, to look at the Christ, the one, the only one, who has the authority to cleanse the root problem. So we see the authoritative power of Jesus. I just want to close with this third thing. 
the awe-inspiring power of evangelism. So, there's varied responses to the miracle, the exorcism of, of this man. Do you see how the crowd respond to what's happened? The crowd, they come running. They see the man in his right mind. And they're scared. So scared by this, they ask Jesus to get out of here, to leave. But what about the man himself, you know? Like he's, his life has been changed and he is now in his right mind. How does he react? There's a couple of sides to it. He clearly now wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. Like, do you see what, do you see what happens here? In verse 18, he's freed from the demons. He sees, wait a minute, Jesus is about to depart. Jesus is getting back on the boat. Jesus is going off to travel to another area. What does the guy do? He says, I, 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 I want to go with Jesus. So he goes up to Jesus, up to the boat. Will you take me with you, Jesus? Please, after this, take me with you. Are you a Christian this morning who is struggling with assurance of your faith? You know, is this chapter of your life being one of doubt? Do you doubt your salvation? Well, I wonder, ask yourself, is that true of you? You know, the experience of this man. Is it true of you this morning that you want in your heart of hearts to be with Jesus? Do you want that? Like, do do you know and want to extend gratitude to God? Do you, in your heart of hearts, have that devotion? Do you have a sense of love for Jesus? Do you want to be with Jesus? If so, what an indicator, what a sign that you too, like this man, have been cleansed from your sin. But there's the other side to it. He wants to be with Jesus. What else does he do? Look at it. He obeys Jesus' command. I I, I don't know about you. I, I think it's quite surprising, isn't it, that Jesus denies this man's request. The guy comes up to him and says, Jesus, please, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. You're not coming with me. And instead, he issues this man with a command. What's the command? Jesus says, no, don't come with me. Go away. Go and tell people. Go and show people what it is that I've done for you. You are cleansed now. Go and show people. Tell the world. This is is what I want you to see. I want to ask you this. Who exactly is it in Scripture here that Jesus commands this man to tell? Do you see? Who is it? Verse 19. Who is this man commanded to tell? The NIV has, if you're using the NIV, the NIV has family. It's wider than that. Jesus commands this man to go and to tell those close to him, those people he sees regularly. 
his loved ones. So this is how we apply that. Would you do this with me just now? Would you, if you're a Christian, would you consider, picture even in your mind, your unconverted family and your unconverted friends? Would you picture them and the unconverted people you see on a daily basis? Do you see them? That there is the primary mission field that you have been given by Almighty God. Those people, that's your mission field. See, why do you think it is that Jesus told this man to go to his family and his friends? Why? Because they would be the ones who would notice most of all the change that's been brought about by Christ, right? And isn't that the same for you? The people closest to you, will they not notice the change in you? And you say to me, Bandy, they didn't know me before I was a Christian. Don't you see? You are being consistently, constantly changed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people in your life, the people you live with, people you work with, people in your family... They will notice those changes. And therefore, they will be more likely to respond when we go to them and we tell them of grace and we tell them of Jesus. We tell them of the glory of the gospel. And you see, oh, come on, come on. You see why that is so important. Do you? Because what did we say? What did we say? We said sin humiliates, destabilizes, it destroys, right? I missed one out. <laughs> sin also kills. Where does the guy live? Verse 3. Where does he live? He lives amongst the tombs. He lives amongst the burial caves. You see what that is? You know, we've got an image there of the truth of all unconverted men. Our unconverted friends and unconverted family, they walk amongst the burial caves. Do you see that? They walk amongst the graves. And so we tell. And we tell of Jesus Christ. And we tell what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what has he done for us? What were we like? We were spiritually naked. We were humiliated because of our sin. And what has he done for his people? He has clothed us like God in the garden. But he has clothed us in his own robes of righteousness, hasn't he? And how has he done that? How has he done it? By he himself being stripped and beaten and bruised and battered and brought to the cross. Do you understand? Do you see it? We have been clothed in righteousness by the derobing, by the humiliation of Jesus. And so what do we do? The people of God, we go and we tell our loved ones about this. We tell them of the power of Jesus and the, the, the might of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. We tell of the gospel of Jesus. We tell the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But most of all, what do we tell them from this? We tell them of the authority 
of the Son of the Most High God. We tell them that he and he alone has the power to defeat evil and sin. We tell them that he has set us free. We tell them that it is Jesus. It's Jesus who has the upper hand. Let's pray.